Policy matters. Policy matters. Policy matters. Policy matters. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Policy Matters. Leading our discussion today are Jesse Loesch, Government Affairs Manager, Sarah Bogdan, Director of Government Affairs, and Sean Tipton, Chief Advocacy and Policy Officer for the ASRM headquarters in Washington, D.C. The Government Affairs team is here today to recap the 2022 midterm elections and looking ahead to 2023. Jesse, I will now turn it over to you. Thanks, Jeff. Um, So I think the government affairs team has barely come down from, I don't even want to say excitement, from uh, the work that we've all done. But I'm really excited to get to ask Sean and Sarah about what we do know so far, what we don't know so far, and sort of what we can do um, going ahead. So I'll start with um, some of the direct actions that we at the ASRM government affairs team took in some states. So Sean, um, we started in Kansas over the summer um, directly engaging with some ballot amendments. So can you tell us a little bit about what we did, um, what day is today? What we did this week (laughs) over the elections um, in the five states that had ballot amendments? Yeah, right. There were there were five states on Tuesday who had abortion rights questions directly before the voting, before the voters. And Earlier in the summer, in in August, Kansas had a similar measure. In all six of those states, ASRM weighed in directly and participated in the election. We, because of our tax status, cannot do candidate elections. We can, however, lobby, and we can lobby when the legislature is acting direct, or when the citizenry is acting directly as the legislature. That is to say, we can get involved when there's a ballot question, and we did, and we have. And it was really fun. This is the only time we have done that in my long tenure with ASRM. Uh, so we ran radio ads and we ran internet ads in all six states, five on Tuesday in Kansas from the summer. Uh, we, we had to pay for that time just like anybody else. We used a professional voiceover artist on the ads and, and did ad agencies for the social media ads. And it was really fun and the message was different because the measures were different by state. But our intent was consistent protect legal access to reproductive health care procedures. And so, so the, while the specifics were, specifics were different, it was really an exciting time. We were glad to have done it. And most importantly, we were very pleased that in all six states where ASRM engaged, the pro-access side prevailed, whether that was preventing uh, a bad piece of, of a restriction being put in the Constitution, as happened in Kentucky, or putting a positive and protective piece been provision into the Constitution as happened in Michigan. Uh, the what what we learned is that when asked directly, the voters will say we want access to health care, including reproductive health care and including pregnancy termination. So you wouldn't believe that if you were to listen to many GOP politicians. And in fact, I've seen some quotes in the newspapers today of those people saying, "Oh, clearly the voters didn't know what they were talking about." That is absolutely not true. The voters did know what they were talking about. They did know what they were saying. And I hope that elected officials will listen to that very clear message. Leave us alone and let let our doctors take care of our needs, even when they involve reproduction. Great. So we're going to talk about Michigan um, in a little bit. But um, I think something really important that you mentioned is that these were sort of comprehensive reproductive rights related 
ballot amendments, right? They did not just, some of them, narrowly focus on abortion. Um, in California, for example, which passed and where we engaged, um, these protected also a right to contraception. So people are looking ahead to potentially a challenge to Griswold, um, which would challenge a right to abortion. Um, Michigan, <laughs> Prop 3, affirms a fundamental right to reproductive freedom. Um, so really, um, ASRM is looking at our members' rights to um, help their patients really make decisions about their own reproductive autonomy. So, Sarah, um, <laughs> it is two days after the elections. What do we know? Um, how did the elections <laughs> change or not um, control of the House and Senate? It's a great question. And it's two days past. And the answer is, we don't know yet. So as of Thursday afternoon, two days past the election, there are still 30 outstanding House seats that have not been called. So I'll start talking about the House. What is interesting with this election is what hasn't changed, which is basically nothing has changed as of this moment. Um, the races that we did think were going to be tight were, were tight. Um, there's been no major, what, what, the question really is the surprise around what hasn't changed is really, is really what has happened. So there's, there's a, there's a large swath of seats that they thought would automatically, pollsters automatically thought that they would lose and there would be the indication of a larger wave or, and change in the house control, but that hasn't happened. Now, that doesn't mean that say it won't happen the next week or two, um, but it hasn't happened quite yet. And it definitely it was very surprising to a lot of pollsters and a lot of political poll watchers and everybody in D.C. and everybody who kind of sort of watches the sausage making of elections. So it's, it was a surprise of how much that didn't actually change and hasn't changed yet. So for the biggest surprise or not really surprise, the you know, biggest change that has happened that is now claimed is what's happened with Pennsylvania in the Senate race. So Fetterman has won the Senate seat. And so that is a big change since it was previously held, his seat was previously held by Patrick Toomey of Pennsylvania, who is a Republican. So that's the only big thing in congressional races that really changed and been called. Not to say things aren't gonna happen in the next few days, things are gonna happen. Um, the other sort of piece in the Senate is that we now know, and it's been called, that there will be a runoff uh, Senate seat uh, race situation in Georgia. Can so you tell that us will for be those who don't know what that means. Give us sure. like a primer on runoffs. So the two candidates are too close. Um, they have very close, very similar amounts of votes, and so they're going to go to a runoff on December six. Right. So, yeah. so neither got a, got above 50 percent. And that's what is required by Georgia law to declare a winner. That's right. So we'll find out really what will happen in Georgia in December. Um, this is this is the second time this has happened. This happened in the last congressional cycle as well. So, Georgia, you be ready. <laughs> you know, I always think it used to always happen in Louisiana, that Louisiana was the deciding race and, and they always had a runoff in December. It has become more consistently Republican, and now Georgia is the uh, is the toss up. 
And it's likely that that race is probably going to be the race that decides Senate control, right? You know, it's too early to tell, unfortunately. I'd like to say, I'd like to give a definitive answer, but yeah, there's still a lot of outstanding votes in Nevada right this minute. And Arizona hasn't been called yet either. So it seems as though with Arizona, um, Mark Kelly is going to hold his seat, but things can certainly change in the next few days. Um, for Nevada, it's really, really close at this moment. So, and it may end up being the Republican candidate at this point. Um, and so if that happens, that means that the runoff will determine who, which, uh, who will hold power in the Senate. So, but, so a, you'll recall that it's a 50-50 Senate right now, meaning Vice President Harris breaks the tie, and thus the Democrats have control over committee chairs and agenda setting. With Pennsylvania flipping from Republican to Democrat, then it becomes a question of if Nevada, in fact, flips and, and Laxalt wins there, that would be a switch the other direction, so they would offset one another. And then if Mark Kelly holds his seat in Arizona, then it is 50-49 heading into Georgia, and if the Democrats could hold that seat, it would go back to 50-50 with Vice President Harris breaking the tie. And if the Demo the Republicans, if Herschel Walker were to win that seat in Georgia, then they then the Republicans would be in the majority 51 to 49. Uh, but that kind of presupposes what we think is going to happen in Arizona and Nevada. But as of Thursday the 10th, we still don't know for sure. Yeah. So just a quick summary. Democrats have to win two seats that are still outstanding for the Senate. And Republicans have to win three seats who are still outstanding for the Senate in order to figure out who will retain control of the Senate. Which is not even considering the House. And speaking of Arizona, um, again, as of 2.19 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 10th, um, we don't yet know about the Arizona gubernatorial race. Um, hasn't yet been called. But we do know um, about some of the other gubernatorial races that had been sort of contentious, predicted, and also relate to um, some reproductive rights decisions. So um, who wants to jump in and tell us about um, these gubernatorial races that um, will presumably have direct effects on, on reproductive medicine and reproductive rights? I'll toss them to you if you want. Well, I think the two big stories in the gubernatorial elections were Michigan and Florida. Two governors who got reelected, Michigan Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, um, and in Florida, Al DeSantis, a Republican. Both were thought maybe they were going to be competitive races. Neither one really turned out to be that way. Um, so if you're looking at it from terms of rising future political stars, that's a place to look because those are two big, important states where governors won really impressive uh, re-election bids. Uh, Governor DeSantis, shockingly, is a forced birth politician. Uh, Governor Whitmer is not. Uh, and the Michigan election, we think, went favorably, including in the state legislature. Um, who wants to take my home state of New York? Maybe since it's your I think state. you have to. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, in New York, um, Kathy Hochul, who had only become governor due to um, Andrew Cuomo's resignation was running for, I guess, her first official election against forced birth uh, and signer of the Life of Conception Act, Lee Zeldin, um, won by 
really not a comfortable margin here. Um, Kathy Hochul has pledged to, along with Attorney General Tish James, make New York a, a reproductive rights sanctuary. Lee Zeldin would have done the opposite, again, signer of the Life of Conception Act. So this was a win for reproductive medicine. Um, Pennsylvania, as Sarah mentioned, the sort of one-two punch of Josh Fetterman and Josh Shapiro. And we've got Wisconsin. So for our cheeseheads, is that a thing? Did I make that up? Great. Um, who wants to take this one? I'm a vegan, so I contractually cannot. <laughs> well, Wisconsin was interesting in that they're, they had two high-profile races, the Senate and the governor, and they appear to have split party-wise. Both incumbents won, and the Senate re uh, Republican incumbent Ron Johnson won, and Democratic Governor Tony Evers prevailed. So it was it's an interesting split. Um, Wisconsin truly is the swing swingiest of swing states, it looks like at this point. Uh, which makes it worth watching. Uh, the, the, and their battles between their Republican-controlled legislature and their Democratic governor have been epic and would appear that there's going to be no uh, reduction in the force of those clashes moving forward. Yeah, importantly, I think for us, um, Tony Evers and Josh Call, their AG, came out again today and sort of reiterated their pledge not to enforce this post-Dobbs total abortion ban that would prosecute providers. So something that I hope other um, AGs and LGs will will take on. And that's a um, pre-row, that's like a 19th century law, correct? Do I remember that right? Yeah. That's their, yes. That's their um, zombie ban, as we said. So, um, so Jesse, let's talk a little bit. We didn't talk explicitly about the U.S. House. I think, I think we need to let Sarah have a crack at that, and then we can talk a little bit about what that's going to look like kind of regardless of party, what it, what it means to try to manage with a very slim majority, I guess we want to get into a little bit after we talk about whose majority it's going to might be. Yeah, so let's talk. Let's go back to the House. So the magic number is 218. That is the number of, of officials and party control that you know breaks the breaks the tie who controls the house who doesn't control the house the predictions right now are are sort of slimming but still leaning towards r um so that would mean kevin mccarthy will be potentially the speaker of the house but I, when we're talking about this i'm looking at these numbers and it looks like it might be as close as 220 um, and that would mean that that's only a two, that's only a two house member majority. And that is really tight, super tight um, and really difficult to manage as a speaker because you have a very wide range of viewpoints. And that effectively makes who everybody basically Senator Joe Manchin. So Senator Joe Manchin was able to sort of control the, 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 <laughs> the amount of work and that was or wasn't done in the Senate this past cycle. Um, and that would effectively mean that anybody in the House could be Joe Manchin, that one member could control two members, three members, a five-member block will, could control what happens in the House, what gets done, what doesn't get done when it comes to voting. Um, obviously, if McCarthy is the speaker, that means that all uh, hearings and committee chairs will be led by Republican members. So, and that would mean we'd see a lot more what we call oversight um, of the Biden administration. But that's a really, going to go back, that's a really tight margin. And I, oof, 
I mean, that's a tight margin, especially with the members of Congress with such a variety of views on the Republican side. Um, I'm sure some folks will remember what happened when the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus came up under uh, while Boehner was uh, speaker. And that was a, like a 20 years, 25 person member of Congress voting block um, that actually Mark Meadows um, helped sort of lead, who then became, um, became uh, chief of staff for uh, President Trump. But they were able to really extract basically anything they wanted out of Boehner um, during that sort of cycle of control. And so this would be even a tighter margin. So any any small block could really control what gets voted on or doesn't get voted on for McCarthy. So, so, so just to kind of reiterate a little of that. So what we're talking about is regardless of the size of the majority, the party in the majority gets the committee chairmanships, which is which gives you the power of agenda setting, and the power and the party of majority gets superior staff resources, which enables them to do things. But as Sarah was saying, and and you all have seen this in the last two years in the Senate, when your margin is so slim, any one person or or two people can effectively have veto power over anything. And so it makes it really, really hard to get anything done, particularly in these times when the parties are block voting almost always. And so you almost always start with, if I'm a Democrat and I'm trying to do something, I'm going to get no Republican votes. Or if I'm a Republican and I'm trying to get something, I'm not going to get any Democratic help. So I have to get it all from within my party. And, and that makes it really hard to govern and really easy for, for small groups of people to throw a wrench into the works and stop things completely. So it is a real leadership challenge for whoever ends up taking that task on. It is not something that I don't think that I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to enjoy being speaker under those circumstances as much as he might have hoped he would have. And Sarah, if it happens that the Democrats keep the Senate and the Republicans take the House, what does that mean for Biden? What does that mean for the Democrats and the Republicans? What does that mean about passing any kind of legislation? That means that every vote for anything that has to be done, like let's say the debt ceiling or tax extenders, which is a whole health thing up should probably talk about on a different podcast. Um, anything to keep the doors open for the government in general is going to be really, really tough. I'm not sure if anybody remembered way back when in the Boehner days about how like the government was closing, wasn't closing, two-week extension, one-week extension, oh, everyone's closed. Like That is like the level of potential of what we could get back into, which is all the basic things that have to be done by Congress, which is to keep the government open to do a deal with the uh, debt ceiling to do anything is going to be a battle and potentially a bloodbath because every member of congress is going to want to extract whatever they can out of those votes and negotiate whatever they can get out of those votes um so definitely ukraine uh, money for ukraine has already been sort of discussed quite a bit um by uh, McCarthy and Biden of a, a potential challenge for the future. Um, uh, so it's, it would be really, it'll be really, it's really tough to govern and it's really tough to accomplish much 
when those margins are one, so tight, and two, to have a split Congress? So for our purposes, um, we just had this election two days ago. There are a little bit under two months before most state session starts, and there's a federal election um, in two years. How should people either get or stay involved in policy and activism right now when basically you've both just told us that things are stymied? Fix it. So, so I think uh, there's a couple things. One is there is no danger of a federal abortion restriction passing as long as Joe Biden is president, right? He will veto it. And then currently constituted, there's no chance the Republicans could overcome that veto. In fact, it would never reach his desk because they, they wouldn't overcome the filibuster. I don't see, even if the Democrats keep the Senate, that they will get rid of the filibuster because I think they recognize how precarious that majority is. But they could. Um, at the same time, it means it's going to be tremendously challenging for us to do things like um, fund the National Institutes of Health because all the funding measures are going to be subject to the blackmail that Sarah just described so that any member can decide on insisting on anything to pass anything. And so it's going to be challenging uh, to, to do that. I think for ASRM members, what you need to be doing is paying attention. We will let you know what's happening in Washington and in your state capitals, and we will let you know uh, when we need you to specifically contact your elected representatives on specific issues. In the meantime, you should be getting yourselves in the habit of regularly contacting your elected officials. So uh, letting them know you're around and what you care about, uh, reminding them of all the good that you do in your districts because you uh, help people with their reproductive medical issues and, and those are these, these members' constituents. And if you work at a big infertility clinic, for example, that's a big employer in a state legislative district. And, and you need to make sure people understand that you're there and that you care about these certain issues. So now it, it, what you don't want to do is wait until October of 2024 to start getting involved in activism again. You need to be consistently communicating with your elected officials and those who wish to become your elected officials. People listen a lot better when they're running for office than when they already have it. I agree completely. It's time to build those relationships. I do want to flag one worst case scenario that could potent that is a worst case scenario when it comes to abortion rights and the Senate. The Senate does flip to Mitch McConnell um, and of control. And he could he could decide to try to break the filibuster for abortion rights. Um, and that would be the worst case scenario, right? Now, when Dobbs happened, he was very open. To that consideration and opportunity if, if, if he had the opportunity to do so. I think in a post-Dobbs world, there's probably some more thought into if he wants to make that decision. You know, six months ago, I would have said he would have done anything to break that, break that filibuster to, to put an abortion restriction bill across um, the Senate. Now, does he feel the same? Do I feel the same way he'd do, that he would do it now? I don't know. I think it's more of a question mark. Um, like I said, six months ago, I said, I would have said, yeah, absolutely. He's going to do it. So the worst case scenario, it's going to happen. Now, I don't know, with all these elections and all of the noise and, and protests and um, businesses coming forward, um, being unhappy with uh, additional abortion restrictions, I think it changes the equation. 
I'm not sure how much it changes the equation, but I do think it does change the equation. So that's the sort of worst case scenario, right? We're not there yet. We will know when we get there, right? But we're not there yet. One, we still have to finish up these elections. We still have to figure out who is going to be in control. And then we have to figure, and then we have to figure out how Mitch McConnell is signaling. And he does a pretty good job signaling about which way he's going to go. Um, so I think we'll have time to communicate with our membership and everybody else and all the reproductive justice groups that we work with. And if this worst case scenario happens, but we're not, we're not there yet. And we'll be happy to tell you when we are. It's, you know, it's going to be real interesting watching how the, the ballot measures get interpreted. Um, and, and, you know, one, Mitch, I've been, I'm a Kentuckian. I've grown up watching Mitch McConnell. I think he is absolutely a stone cold political genius, probably one of the greatest legislative leaders this country has ever seen. And, one reason that makes him so good is he really understands what the electorate will put up with and what it won't. And I think he's going to pay close attention to those uh, election measures. And I think he understands, of all people, that the Republicans' electoral performance this past election was hurt by the mobilization of Democratic voters um, incensed about the Dobbs decision. So I think I think that's how McConnell's going to see it. And I think he's going to want to minimize the amount of attention given to abortion restrictions. Having said that, the forced birth community is an essential part of the Republicans' governing coalition, and they will not be able to be ignored. So there's going to be some real tensions there as as the Republican operatives try to figure that out. So I heard both of you say that attention and noise makes a difference. So what I'm hoping happens is that our members keep and start making noise. And we are going to keep providing the means through which you can do that. Um, I'm really excited that you guys gave me the chance to come on here and make you talk with me. Thank you. And please feel free to reach out to any of us, all three of us. You know, we're all available. We work for you, our membership. So please, if you have questions or thoughts or concerns, just let us know. It's what we do. I'd like to thank our guests today on ASRM Policy Matters, Sean Tipton, Sarah Bogdan, and Jesse Loesch. Uh, we could obviously make this a, a much longer discussion, and, and I'm sure that we'll have some follow-ups in the coming months as things come more uh, uh, to light. My thanks to them. My thanks to all the listeners. Uh, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is Policy Matters. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.